Thank you so much, David, band, and choir for leading us in worship this morning. To prepare our hearts to sing, or sorry, to hear God's word. Woodlawn, you sing so well, and it's, it's such a sweet thing to hear. John, in his first epistle, says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Plural, works. The devil is active in our world. We combat against the world, our own flesh, and the devil. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and one of the most heinous works of the devil is the scourge of abortion in our land. The most innocent among us are slaughtered every day, today, yesterday, tomorrow, every day to the scourge of abortion. Francis Schaeffer has famously said that over every abortion clinic, it should read, open by permission of the church. The church collective has often failed at her job to stand up for the unborn the way Scripture prescribes if you look over this past century. Often even the church, notice the air quotes, especially if you're not watching and you're listening, has even had wolves in sheep's clothing supporting abortion and the mass murder of children in the womb. This past spring, I sat in with many of you who joined me at the Capitol. When we were at the Capitol, we heard a deliberation at the Criminal Justice Committee uh, for the House, and they did some deliberations surrounding House Bill 813, which was the abolition of abortion in Louisiana Act. It passed out of committee with a 7-2 to two vote, and even one of the politicians in the room, when it came to his vote, voted in the affirmative with a very boisterous, absolutely, instead of just saying yes and moving forward. That caused the room and those of us who were excited about it to chuckle, even with excitement, over the passage of this bill to make it to the House floor. But then a week goes by. And as it is prepared to be taken to the House floor, that same representative completely changes his vote and offers an amendment that completely guts the five-page bill. And he sways many of the other politicians with him. But why did he change his vote? Well, the day before the vote took place, Pro-Life Incorporated, I I say that tongue-in-cheek, a coalition of 76 organizations, one of them being the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a letter together, and I'll sign their names to it, to influence the vote, stating that HB 813 was wrong because the woman who gets an abortion is a victim of the abortion industry. This past summer, the Dobbs decision was handed down and Roe v. Wade was overturned. But did you know that it is still legal in all 50 states to get an abortion? Now, a bunch of trigger laws went into effect, and I won't go into all the details here, where some limits were put on things. Abortion clinics were closed. For example, um, you can still get an abortion in Louisiana, but not at a clinic. All the clinics are shut down, and praise God for that. But still, a woman can get an abortion in our state. Every day, they're murdered. Now, you hear me introduce this topic, especially if you're a guest with us, and maybe you might be asking, Pastor, can't you just talk about Jesus and not politics? Pastor, the pulpit is not a place to do politicking, and to some degree, I absolutely agree with you on that. 
But what is politicking? Well, I looked up the definition. The action or practice of engaging in political activity. But did you know that every Sunday from this pulpit, we engage in political activity? You want to know why? Because the King of Kings has spoken. The Lord of Lords has spoken. And when I tell you, when I have to come to you and unfold the words of the King as a messenger, an ambassador for Christ, right? We have 2 Corinthians 5. We're all ambassadors for Christ. We're representing the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he came to preach his gospel, said, repent and believe, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is a king. And we must live and acknowledge it as such. So, yes, when we open God's word, it gets political. Think about the role of the preacher. And Paul, Paul says um, in Ephesians chapter 4, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. We're supposed to build the body of Christ up and equip you to think biblically, to live biblically, and to love biblically. But think of also how Paul spoke of himself and how he handled the word of God to the elders that he met at Miletus in Acts chapter 20. I would love to read all of it, but just for the sake of time, I want to point out one specific thing. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Every jot and tittle of the text. I'm going to communicate all of it is what he's saying. And notice what he goes on to say. He said everything that needed to be said from God's word, and he declares in this text, he goes on, he says that he is innocent of the blood of all of them. He uses this imagery of innocent of their blood. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul actually gets that idea from the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, when he says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person, the watchman, um, is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. You see, when a pastor fails to preach the whole counsel of God, and especially maybe even avoids a tough topic, there's blood on his hands regarding that. And what Paul's trying to say here is, I I taught the whole counsel of God, and I'm innocent of the blood of you all. You know what you're supposed to follow. You know the commands of Christ that you're supposed to follow. And it's a weighty responsibility to be a preacher of God's word. The watchman, as Ezekiel said, had a responsibility. He failed to do it. And many preachers today have a responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God, and they don't. They don't, and the blood of their congregants is on their own hands, and dare I say, the blood of the unborn is on their hands. Many bow the knee to the culture. They bow their knee to one party who glorifies in the death of the unborn, one party that tells women to shout their abortion. Then on the other hand, they do not prophetically call to the party that often garners our votes to hold them to a biblical standard. In an effort to be faithful regarding the whole counsel of God, I come bringing this sermon from God's word with a heavy heart. I believe that the church at large in America has become complacent in our message. We don't always faithfully proclaim the gospel in the public square. We compromise or we minimize or we don't properly evangelize and call people to the biblical standard and preach the gospel to them. We, can, we gladly will talk about Jesus being our Savior, and we rightly should, We should, as Paul says in Titus, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. But we neglect to say also, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord when you go to the voting booth. He's he's Lord when you go to the grocery store. He's Lord when you come into the church. He's Lord when you go to school. He's Lord when you go to work. 
Jesus is Lord. It's not something that has to be acknowledged by us for it to be a reality. It is the reality, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And of course, we do here as believers because we love the Lord, and we want to live under his lordship. Philippians chapter 2 acknowledges the lordship of Christ in, in verse 9 and 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee Notice, it didn't say some knees. It didn't say the knees of Christians in America or the knees of people here. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. You see, we were made for God's glory and we were made in his image to worship him. So as we think about the topic of abortion, our culture wants to merely say, this is merely a hot-button political issue. You shouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Our nation sees it as a political hot-button issue, but it's an issue of justice, and it reveals at the heart of it idolatrous worship. Maybe this makes you uncomfortable to talk about it. Well, possibly, if we, if we ask why are you uncomfortable, maybe you have more of a humanist view of politics rather than a Christian one. Or maybe you're someone who sadly has had an abortion. Or maybe you helped someone get an abortion. And that's a very heavy weight to bear. Because before God, you stand guilty if, if you haven't been forgiven of your sin. We're going to talk about that in, the, in a moment as well. You feel condemned. And that's a heavy weight to bear. But as we just sang, Jesus is the refuge of our weary soul. And I was once a guilty and lost sinner who needed salvation. And if that's you today, who's someone who hasn't repented and trusted in Christ, alone for salvation, he can forgive you of your sin of abortion. So as we talk about politics, I want to help frame something for you. Politics is downstream from culture, and culture is downstream from religion, for every culture. Okay, so when we go look at a Muslim culture, the politics in that culture are influenced by the religion. And every culture is that way. It's just inevitable cause and effect, we might say. What I believe determines my behavior. So if I believe this, I'm going to act it out. So when we think about politics and religion, one of the things that we see is secular humanism in our culture. And you're saying, well, using this big term, Travis, what is secular humanism? Secular humanism is a philosophy or belief system that embraces human reason, secular ethics, and philosophical naturalism, in other words, evolution or Darwinism, while explicitly rejecting any religious tradition that believes in the supernatural. And clearly, as Christians, we believe in the supernatural. So as we think about the worldview arc of secular humanism, let's follow it through this rubric, and I'll do it with Christianity as well. Creation, fall, redemption. So how did things begin for the secular humanist? Well, everything's material, so evolution. It just happened from the Big Bang and chance, and, and all these things happened over time. Natural selection. We just evolved to the state we're at today. But what's their version of the fall? Or what's the problem with the world according to the evolutionist? Well, often today it's the rise of Christianity or morality that impedes the progress of evolution and humanism. So what is redemption for the evolutionist? It's a mastery of nature. It's, a, it's progress for the purpose of survival. So the means of redemption really is going to be power for them. For the humanist, it's going to be power where they can 
be there surviving at the top of the food chain, we might say, and that will be in the place of politics, which explains why our culture is a lot the way it is today. But for the Christian worldview, it's very different. Where did it all begin, and who are we? Well, in our text in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, our foundational text as we think about abortion, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We see God, our creator, a perfect creator, made each one of us, and we, we are of equal value, but of also greater value than anything else in all creation. You are, we are, we all are, and praise God for that gift. But what happened with the fall? Eve ate the fruit, and Adam listened to his wife Eve, and they fell. They were exiled from the garden. When they were exiled from the garden, they were exiled from God's blessing. Sin entered the world, and death entered the world. As it says in Romans 3.10 about this sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Our state before God is rebellion. Our state before God is a complete rejection of his law, of his gospel. But redemption. When we think about redemption from a Christian worldview, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says in verse 17, listen to this, how God changes you and me when we trust in him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Wow. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. One of the best summaries of the gospel. Listen to this. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus knew no sin. Why? Why did he do that? The text tells us. Isn't that great? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. None of us deserve that. That's grace. That's mercy. This redemption changes us and it gives us this ministry of reconciliation. Now what is reconciliation? It, it's, it carries this idea of a a, a thorough change of status in, in relationship. So if you're in conflict with another person, we want to see reconciliation. We want to see the conflict go away. No longer you're at each other's throats or offended or enemies, but rather your brothers or your friends. Things are back to normal. In the same way, we were enemies of God, against God in every way, as Romans 3 just said. And what did God do? 
He reconciled us. He changed it so thoroughly. We're, no longer do we look as Christians to God as our judge that will send us to hell like we rightly deserve. But now we look to God as Father, Abba Father, who adopted us into his family and made us his own. And we didn't do that. Christ did that in our lives. So in other words, our faith should change and affect our lives. The old has passed away, right? We're not living for ourselves. We're not humanists, secular humanists like our culture is. No, we're Christians. We follow Christ. Think of the, the, the Apostle Paul. As Saul, the Hebrew, he ran around and murdered Christians. He murdered people. What is abortion? Abortion's murder. It's murder. Saul murdered people. And then Christ saved him. And then he gave his life serving the Lord and his bride, the church he tried to murder. So now that we've laid some groundwork as to our presuppositions, how we approach this topic as Christians, I want to immediately talk about the abolition of abortion. I really want to encourage you as you think about this subject to listen with open ears, but also know we're also going to give you a resource at the end of this service as well um, from Free the States, and it's a really excellent resource about um, abolition. But really, Christians should push for the full abolition of abortion. Terms like ban abortion or stop abortion or end abortion... They're not bad in and of themselves, but they're not precise in their communication. Yes, I want it banned. Yes, I want it stopped. Yes, I want it to end. But abolition is very specific. It's about the laws. And what is the fundamental basis for abolition? It is equal protection. The same, the same protection. If someone were to walk in this room and to murder me in the pulpit right now, you would call for justice. I hope so. <laughs> You would call for justice, right? But what about the unborn? What if someone was in here, they're pregnant, and they're saying, I'm going to go have an abortion, and they murder their child? How should we feel about how, and not, not living by our feelings, but how, how should we think about that? We would think that's just as wrong as me being taken out right here. It's the same thing. Why? Because we're all equal. We're all made in God's image. And so we should think and treat it as such. In other words, we should have equal protection. I recall a story, and it just came to my mind. I didn't think about this in my sermon prep, but it just came to my mind, of a story of a, of a case in California where a woman was murdered and she was pregnant. And even um, both parties, bipartisan, came together and, and passed, I believe they passed a bill of some kind where this, they would be, that would be charged as a double homicide. That the, the, the life in the womb that was, in this case, wanted was equal to the, that of the life of the mother. So the criminal got charged for double homicide. It makes sense. It make, it's common sense. It makes sense. So as we think about equal protection, I want to give you seven principles. I didn't come up with these principles. Uh, the Foundation for Abolishing Abortion uh, did, and this is the organization that's behind a number of these Senate and House bills that are around the country, especially even the one for HB 813. So these are the principles for equal protection. Here's principle number one. If you're a note taker, I'll try to repeat it. Principle number one, recognize life from fertilization. Recognize life from fertilization. An individual human life begins at the moment God combines the reproductive cell of a man with that of a woman and begins the process of forming the body of the child in the womb. This is biblically called conception and biologically called fertilization. Think of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the very first conception. 
Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There are hundreds of references like this that I could go through this morning, but for the sake of time, we'll not. But it's clearly understood in this text that Cain was a person in the womb when she conceived at the moment of conception. Psalm 139 this morning also points to that that we also read. So principle number one, recognize life from fertilization. Principle number two, affirm equal value. Affirm equal value. So from the moment of fertilization, all human beings are created equal and have equal value because all are made by God in his own image. I already read Genesis 1, 26 to 27 about being made in God's image, but did he know eight chapters later, God revisits that idea again. In Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Proverbs 22, 2 shows this idea of equality in a different sphere, but you can see how it relates. The rich and the poor meet together, The Lord is the maker of them all. We who are born, we enjoy life. And there are those who are unborn that are wonderfully, peacefully enjoying life in their mother's womb, but sometimes are woken up and being brutally murdered, fighting for their life, pushing back the forceps from the the abortion doctor, writhing in pain. And it's a horrific, horrific thing. Principle number three, we oppose partiality in judgment. Oppose partiality in judgment or favoritism. Favoritism. God's holy character despises partiality in judgment and unequal weights and measures. He despises those things, but a just weight is his delight. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God has no favorites. We're not his favorites as Americans versus other nations around the world. We're not his favorites because we're, you know, you could just think, think of anything. Think of any aspect about you. Man, woman, black, white. It doesn't matter. God doesn't have favorites. He shows no partiality. And that's true for born and unborn. Principle number four, follow God's example. Consistent with his character, God treats pre-born persons similarly to born persons, including requiring similar justice for harm criminally done to either and using the same terms to describe children, whether inside or outside the womb. Exodus 21, starting in verse 22, says, When men strive together, so two guys are fighting, and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, Then you shall pay, listen to the first one, life for life. Life for life. Genesis 9, 6 right there. Applied in Exodus 21. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. He's getting really specific. To the degree of harm will be the degree of punishment according to the law. 
Principle number five, call for justice. God commands civil authorities to do justice generally and to do justice to the fatherless specifically. And he forbids them to show partiality and judgment. Listen to Amos chapter 5, the prophet Amos speaking to the people of Israel. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. They were a people that loved evil and hated good. And they weren't establishing justice. And the prophet Amos, speaking on behalf of the Lord, called them to do so. So call for justice. That's what the prophet should do. Principle number six, obey the lawful governing authority. Yes, we should obey our government. Unless it's inconsistent with his word, God commands every person to be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13, and I I commend uh, Lewis's sermon on that subject a while back. One of the best I heard on Romans 13. Go listen to that. And also, um, as the foundation for abolishing abortion, what I'm reading with these principles, they summarized uh, very well. Uh, They said this regarding our Constitution. In the United States of America, the primary civil governing authorities, it's not the executive office, and they can just choose to do whatever they want. It's not Congress choosing to do whatever they want. It's not the Supreme Court choosing to do whatever they want. What is the law of the land? It's the Constitution. That's the governing civil authority that everyone vows to uphold when they take office. The Constitution of the United States provides... Quote, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That's amendment number 14 to the U.S. Constitution. Numerous state constitutions also have similar provisions. But what's happening every day? Equal protection is not given to the unborn. Even when our trigger laws went into place in Louisiana, if a doctor performs an abortion, he's not getting the same penalty. If he opens up his clinic secretly and he gets caught... He's not getting tried for homicide. He's not getting tried for murder. He gets a fine and maybe some prison time. And the fine is very small in comparison to the value of that life. And principle number seven, the last one, love your pre-born neighbor. Jesus commands what is commonly called the golden rule, that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And he sums up the whole of the scriptures for how we must think and act toward our neighbors from fertilization onwards with the royal law. You all know this one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to answer some objections to biblical abolition, just two in particular, it's not the time. It's not the right time. We can do this later. We can pass this other bill. Or it's not the right method. You know, we got to do it a different way. Well, to address it's not the time, let me ask you this question. Should, should justice ever be delayed? If we know something unjust has happened, say, well, it's not the time to deal with that. When I read Scripture, the plain reading of the text says otherwise. Micah 6.8, he has told you. God has already said it. Oh, man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? It's a requirement, not a suggestion. But to do justice to do it, not delay it, and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It doesn't say wait. It doesn't say delay. It says do it. It's always the right time to do the right thing. It's always the right time to do what is just. So that first objection is easy to solve. But it's not the right method. 
Now, we can have a debate about methods and a friendly debate and friendly disagreement. I have many friends who don't agree with me on this, and I still love them. They're my friends. But as we, rela- as we think about methods, this pamphlet we'll be handing out to you guys lays out the five tenets of abolition. I won't cover it here because I want you to read it. I want you to go read it. But in summary, it, these authors are experts in the abolitionism of the slave trade. I think one of them even got their PhD in, in history regarding this era of history in William Wilberforce and how he fought against the slave trade. And maybe you saw that movie, Amazing Grace. I can't remember the actor's name, but all I remember, because I like Marvel movies, is he played the Fantastic Four guy, the stretchy guy, right? And he was, he's, a, he's Wilberforce in Amazing Grace. Did a good job. I, I, after that, I went and read Eric Metaxas' biography on William Wilberforce. Phenomenal biography by the same title, Amazing Grace. And Wilberforce changed the world because he fought for the abolition of the slave trade. No compromise. Now, there's two different views here regarding method. One is called gradual incrementalism, and the other is immediate abolitionism. Let me define those both for you. And this comes from uh, this pamphlet. Gradual incrementalism seeks to end abortion gradually by standing for and standing behind incremental methods, listen, of both evangelism and legislation. This is the typical pro-life organization position. The other method, immediate abolitionism, seeks to end abortion immediately by standing for and standing behind immediate and complete methods of both evangelism and legislation. So to politicians... We should plead with them to kiss the sun. We pray that they will be saved. We, the same gospel I would preach to a politician is the same gospel I'd preach to a child. Repent and believe in Christ alone. Listen to Psalm 2 here. As a psalmist speaks of the Lord and of the kings of the earth, the rulers, the, the politicians. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. In other words, God puts bonds on me. I don't want to submit to him as Lord. Let's cast their cords away from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You Jesus, the Son, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Then the psalmist addresses the kings. Listen. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our politicians and all mankind, you this morning, if this is you, would be wise to take refuge in Christ. You must take refuge in Christ in his word. 
This is the only place where true blessing for any nation will be found. And lastly, I want to examine a biblical example of a prophet of God who did not give in or compromise on what God said, even when given offers by leaders, Moses and Pharaoh. We're going to cover this soon when we get in greater details about the plagues, but this classic confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh is one that is often referenced in history, and we see Moses' response to Pharaoh, and that should be our example, and it is this, no compromise over what God has commanded. No compromise over what God has commanded. You see, the Lord gave specific instructions to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In verse 18, the Lord said, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now remember, Moses reluctantly obeyed. He didn't want to speak. But he did go. And he said this to to Pharaoh. And did, did Pharaoh let him go? We all know the story, right? No. Pharaoh did not let him go. He actually became more cruel towards them. But then in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So this battle of wills ensued, and plague after plague came down upon the Egyptians. As Rusty Thomas explains, uh, an author of a book on abolition, he said this, It was through these judgments that Pharaoh began offering deals to Moses. He became more willing to reach across the aisle He was willing to work with Moses. He practiced the masterful art of political compromise. Listen to this, and and you'll see it clearly in the text. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 25, after the first four plagues, Pharaoh offers a proposal. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go. He's letting them go? Oh, great. Well, listen closely. Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Ah, so you can't go three days' journey. You have to stay in Egypt. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. So this might be implying in Moses' mind, well, the law of the land of Egypt says if I do that, I could face a capital punishment. So it wouldn't even be right under your own laws, Pharaoh, for me to do this. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Verse 27, Moses says, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness And sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. I love that. As he tells us. So Pharaoh wanted to maintain control of them. So he tries to make some concessions. Kind of like a a half release. So in, in verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go, sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. So in in these plagues, he's asking to end the plagues. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you. And I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened 
his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So Pharaoh cheats the people of God again. So more plagues came uh, before the third negotiation deal from Pharaoh. But how does Moses respond? Does he, if this is the, the line, the standard, does he go under the line and go away from God's word? No. What does he do? God gave a clear command. Let's see how he responded. Exodus chapter 10, verse 9. Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Moses didn't compromise. And after this, two more uh, plagues came, and Pharaoh gave a last shot proposal in Exodus 10, 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Listen to this. Here's the compromise. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must, hear the verb there, it must go with us. And I love this. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Not one ounce of compromise. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. We see a faithful prophet of God, Moses, not compromising on the word of God. With a politician seeking to compromise what he said. Russell Hunter, he says this regarding abolition, and um, it's a phenomenal quote. Because God's word is our foundation, and it teaches us that the battle against wickedness belongs to the Lord. Abolitionists rely on the wisdom and providence of God, not on worldly wisdom and pragmatism of man. As John Quincy Adams put it when he was at, when, sorry, put it when asked why he was not discouraged at the lack of progress in Congress regarding the abolition of slavery. He's not discouraged. Why? This is what he said. Duty is ours. The results belong to God. What a great perspective of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The quote goes on, uh, not of Adams, but of Hunter. We have a responsibility to be faithful to his command, and it is God's prerogative to remove scales from the eyes of magistrates and citizens. Remember, incrementalism. Definition again. It seeks to end abortion gradually by standing for and standing behind incremental methods, both of evangelism and legislation. That's not the way forward. As Christians, we must, we must champion what God has said in his word to do justice today, to not delay it. We can't be partial and say that, okay, this heartbeat bill that we're going to pass, you know, what about before the heartbeat can be, be detected? Are we saying that they're not of equal value? That's what the law communicates. The law communicates that, okay, if we're going to pass the law, because laws teach, the law of God is a tutor, as Galatians 3 argues. Well, if we sit here and say, well, we'll pass this law to say that. Well, some people actually end up learning. I even heard someone who used to be pro-abortion-minded say, oh, I thought it wasn't a baby until the heartbeat. No, it's, not, it's, not, it's a baby before the heartbeat is detected. And so laws teach. We want to write laws that don't show partiality. It shows partiality to go that way. Now, another objection that has to do with the pro-life narrative says that there are two victims related to abortion, the pre-born child and the mother. This is, number one, way too general, but number two, it's mostly false, and I want to say why. Are there some mothers who are victims? Yes. 
Hear me clearly. Are there some mothers who are victims? Yes. And there's an easy way to tell that. A common sense way that a woman is a victim or not. You see, on my podcast with Brian Gunter, pastor of First Baptist Livingston down the road, he told a story of how he watched an older woman dragging by the hair her 13-year-old daughter into the abortion clinic that he was preaching outside of. The girl was weeping and crying and saying, no, mom, no, I want to keep the baby. And she's screaming expletives and saying, I am not raising this baby. We're getting rid of this baby. She didn't say fetus. She didn't say clump of cells. She said baby as her daughter wept. That grandmother coerced the murder of her unborn grandson or granddaughter. It's horrific. Should that 13-year-old girl be charged? No. She is a victim, and we must stand for those victims. What about the women who were not coerced? Were they merely just misinformed? Are they just victims of misinformation? I would find it very unlikely that anyone is misinformed that what is in them is actually a baby at the moment of conception. Even most people don't deny that what is in a person is a baby. What is in a woman is a baby. They will just argue that it is not a person yet. They'll make this body-person dichotomy, that they can gain personhood when you know, maybe when they have a heartbeat, or maybe when they're in the third trimester, or maybe when they're born, or maybe when they're, as some ethicists say, when they're three years old, they, they're considered persons. So you can, you can kill anything that's not a person. It's just a body. So should a woman who has an abortion be criminally charged for having one? If you were to go to the Woman's March, the place where many of these alleged victims march for the right to abortion, to murder their unborn child, you'll find signs, signs reading this. Here's one sign. I'd rather be a murderer than a mother. As they smile and shout about the murder of their unborn child, does that sound like a victim? One woman holding a sign saying abortion should be safe and rare, and upon closer inspection was wearing an earring. On that earring it had an alligator. And in the alligator's mouth was a baby. That brings to, to mind the images of Pharaoh throwing the Hebrew boys into the Nile to drown or to be eaten. One woman shouting her abortion had a cake that she bought from the grocery store that you normally buy to celebrate for, ha- for having a baby. On the cake it said, it's a boy. She crosses out the Y and writes R-T-E-D, it's aborted, and celebrates the abortion of her son, the murder of her son. Does this person sound like a victim? The famous social media account, Libs of TikTok, shared a recording from a woman who said, I would get pregnant just to kill it. Is that a victim? I belabored the point, but on purpose. We have been told constantly that all women are always victims of abortion. And that is not the case. That is not the case. It's sadly not the case. We look at this. We see the, these people committing the sin of murder. And all the while, what, is, what are we communicating when we say you're a victim? That you're not guilty of murder. And when God calls that murder, we're telling them you haven't sinned. But what happens if they don't recognize that they haven't sinned? You know, what does the text of Scripture say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're, we're aiding in the deception of people. 
when we put that they're a victim when they're not. In, in a one heated speech at the House of Commons, William Wilberforce challenged those present over the abolition of slavery. Listen to this. He said, as soon as I ever had arrived thus far in my investigation of the slave trade, I confess to you, sir, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for the abolition. A trade founded in iniquity and carried on as this was must be abolished. Let the policy be what it might. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest till I had effected its abolition. I felt a confidence in this principle and took the resolution to act upon it soon. Indeed, the light broke in upon me. Having heard all of this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. We have seen reports of Planned Parenthood selling baby parts, of Kermit Gosnell having an abortion clinic murdering children even coming out of the womb. Go watch the documentary Gosnell. You'll see it. It's horrific. But did you know that there's also grace for them? There's grace. John Newton, a contemporary of William Wilberforce, was a slave trader. And today, almost every American could probably sing the first stanza of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's the words of a former slave trader. Maybe that's the words of a former abortionist. Maybe that's a, the words of a, someone who, maybe in this room, maybe you aborted your child and you regret that and you've repented of that and you've been saved and you, you hear that hymn and you sing that hymn with tears streaming down your face saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. When I think of my sin, that's what I think. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Whatever sin you've committed, there's forgiveness for you. If you've committed the sin of abortion, there's forgiveness of you. Listen to Paul reflecting on his own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In other words, he's saying, the biggest sinner I know is me. And you should, each one of you should say that about yourselves and I should say that about myself. The biggest sinner I know is me. He goes on to say, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life to the king of ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen as we think about abolition immediate ending to things i, I reflect on second timothy chapter chapter one where paul at the end of his life reflecting on the gospel he says 
Therefore, in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, and look how Jesus Christ is described, who abolished death. He got rid of it. He killed death. You see, Justin Martyr, he, or actually, St. Athanasius, is in his book on the Incarnation, when talking about the apostles' view of death, he said they looked at death like it was tied up on the ground and laughed at it and mocked at it and spit at it. They didn't have any fear of death. Our last enemy, the worst enemy, death, was defeated by Christ. He abolished death. And not only did he abolish death, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And I want to say to you today that we must fight for the abolition of abortion and not just to see abortion gone, but we must also bring life. We must bring the gospel to bear to all people, to not water it down, to not compromise, to say, repent and believe in the gospel. Republican, Democrat, Independent, all of you, everyone, repent and believe in the gospel. And remember in the beginning I said Francis Schaeffer had famously said that over every abortion clinic it should read, open by permission of the church. Today, I'm going to reword it slightly. Over the Supreme Court, over every legislator, over every governor's office, over every abortion pill-making factory, over every abortion clinic still operating after the downfall of Roe, it should read, open because the church hasn't abolished it. But can we add a yet to the end of that? Open because the church hasn't abolished it yet. I hope so. And may God give us favor to see the scourge of abortion abolished in our land. Let's pray. God, we come before you with heavy hearts. Recognizing that every day the unborn are murdered. As I think about my own four children and the preciousness of their life as I saw them in the womb on the sonogram machine. I can't imagine how many other children die and are murdered and suffer and the value and the life they they could bring to this world. Image bearers of you. And their life was snuffed out. God, I pray that you would bring about repentance in our hearts where we've compromised. Maybe we've compromised in our own hearts or maybe in our actions, but God, what we... We pray, Lord, that we would act faithfully in this, in this endeavor and be faithful ministers of the gospel to call people to the gospel to repent of this heinous crime in our nation. Because, Lord, they're your, they're your children. They're image bearers. And so, Lord, we pray for repentance. But, Lord, we also pray for anyone in this room who's had an abortion or who's helped someone have an abortion. First, if they're a believer, I pray that today they don't walk away feeling condemned because that would be a lie. If you're a believer today and you've done any of those things, the Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And amen to that. Paul, a murderer, wrote that. And today, if you have partaken in murder and you've asked God to forgive you, he's forgiven you. Proclaim that with joy, with tears. 
and gratitude in your heart. But today, if you're an unbeliever and you have participated in that sin, or let's just say any sin, the Bible says if we lie or cheat or steal or murder or lust or dishonor our parents or covet or worship other gods, that we are guilty and we've broken his law and deserve condemnation. Well, Christ came and lived a perfect life for you that if you would repent, meaning change your mind about God and change your direction, repent and believe in the gospel, Christ will save you to the uttermost. He'll make you new. He'll make you whole and provide for you eternal life. Provide for you the mercy that you know you long for to get that burden of your sin off your back that weighs so heavy upon you. Don't ignore it. Don't push it to the side. I think of that song that says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Come today. At this, at this time, we're going to have a time of response. And if that's you today, you need to trust in Christ. Pastor Lewis and I will be standing down front. And we'll be glad to receive you, that you might profess faith in Christ. But maybe, if you don't want to come down, you can turn to your neighbor. There are many gospel-believing Christians in this room who love God and would be glad to tell you, of the joy of salvation. Repent and trust in Christ today. Maybe today as well, you need prayer. We'd be glad to receive you to pray with you down front, or maybe you desire to join Woodlawn in membership. We'd be glad to get to know you. Please come down and let us, let us know that's your desire. We're so grateful for today. We're so grateful for life that we live. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to faithfully proclaim the gospel and that we would see abortion abolished in this land. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.